This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome to the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Caston-Smith, Pastor of Education at Rio Vista Community Church. And joining me today is our Director of Student Ministries, Will Bushman. We're solving mic issues today. (laughs) It has taken us quite a while to get this figured out this morning, but I think we are actually recording uh, which is which is Hopefully. good. Which is, this is good. This it's is a good goal. start. <laughs> so anyway, today we're going to be talking about the most important news in all of the Bible: the great triumph of the resurrection that we find in Mark chapter sixteen. Uh, this is the heart of the Christian faith. Without it, everything else is meaningless. Yeah, it's a big one. The Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection's not true, then we're to be pitied above all people, and that's an absolutely true statement. Because uh, basically what the Bible calls you to do is to surrender this life, right, for the hope of the one that's coming, right? You lay down your life, you carry your cross, you die to self because you believe that there is an inheritance stored up for you where all the things that you are sacrificing for in this world are returned to you in infinite and eternal measure in the one to come. And if that's not true, then you've just forfeited your brief momentary chance at pleasure for nothing. And so the resurrection is the centerpiece. It is the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. Would you agree? Yeah. And, you know, the way we've been doing this, kind of going chapter by chapter, we ended last week with, you know, Jesus on the cross. And, you know, the whole thing is a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. That's right. So we come to 16 and we're waiting for it, hoping for it. You know, Jesus has been talking that this is going to happen. And it does. Yeah. So before we jump into Mark chapter 16, I do want to give you another update on our friend Mark. Uh, He did receive his epidural. He was experiencing really, really bad pain um, in his back and leg, his his buttocks. Um, It's a weird word to say out loud, right? I don't know what other word to use there. It didn't feel good in my headphones. (laughs) So anyway, the epidural was successful. It helped to alleviate a lot of the pain, thank God. Um, And he is now taking some medication, as he says, to give the cancer a punch in the face uh, and to to throw the first attack at the cancer because it's kind of had free reign in his body. And so this is the first time that, you know, Mark and and the doctors are taking it to the cancer. And so pray that his treatments are working. He's on immunotherapy and chemo's coming. um, And we are praying that it's effective and it puts the cancer in its place for a while and gives him some great length of life and quality of life. Um, and that's our hope. Yep. We're praying for you, Mark. I don't know if you listen to this anymore. Hopefully. <laughs> I'm sure he does. All right. So we're jumping into Mark chapter 16, uh, verse one. Jesus has been crucified, died. He has been buried. The tomb has been sealed by the Roman authorities. There's a guard posted. And so now we come to... Sunday morning, the morning of the resurrection. And it says, when Sabbath, and you got to remember, these are this is writing in first century from a Jewish perspective, so the Sabbath is Saturday. When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
You remember when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies at, at 3 p.m., and according to kind of Jewish tradition and law, you weren't allowed to work once the Sabbath began, and the Sabbath began at nightfall on Friday night. And so Jesus is dead. They've got to rush him into the tomb because they're not allowed to do anything with him once night falls because the Sabbath has begun. And so they race Jesus into the tomb. They seal it. Nobody has gotten an opportunity to really anoint his body or to, to honor him or anything like that. Uh, and so now, after the Sabbath, on the morning Sunday morning, the women are coming with the hopes that they're going to be able to honor his body. Would they do that just once, like in a normal, like obviously Jesus is going to be resurrected, so you don't get another chance to do that because his body won't <laughs> yeah, be right. dead. But how would that happen, like just culturally? Would you just anoint the body once and that's kind of the thing and the tomb would be sealed forever? Mm-hmm. So, so what happens when someone dies in the ancient world is you had tombs and the tombs would be reused. When we think of a tomb, we think you put a body in there yeah, and yours. it stays in there forever, <laughs> yeah. you know? But in, in the first century, what they would do is they would seal a body into a tomb and then they would let the body decompose. And they would stay in there for quite a while until all the blood and flesh and organs and everything else decomposed and became dust. And you go back in there at a later date and you gather up the person's bones that don't decompose as fast. Yeah. And you gather them and you put them in what's called an ossuary box. Mm. And that ossuary box you go and you display. Like if you look on the hill that's east of Jerusalem, which is kind of the Mount of Olives in the, in the Bible is what it's referred to. Um, you see all these ossuary boxes that are all over the place. Those are the bo- boxes of families filled with bones. So we have, like Caiaphas, who's the high priest who put Jesus to death, we have the box, his ossuary that's filled with his bones and all the bones of his family. That's wild. It is wild. And so what, what happens, like when Jesus goes into this tomb, it says a tomb in which no man had lain before. Well, why is it telling us that? It's because it's reused over and over again. And so what they would do is put Jesus, they're, they're thinking, we're going to put Jesus in a tomb. And in that ancient world, there was a, um, a cultural belief that like decomposition was almost a sign of like being forsaken. And so they would anoint, they would wrap, like they would mummify. They wrap them up in linen strips. They try to preserve the body as best they can. Huh. And the, I, you remember Lazarus, it's four yeah. days, and they're like, please don't. His body's stinking. There's a shame to it, right? Um, and the Psalms, David writes about how the, the, the great one, would, would he, God would not abandon his body to rot. Hmm. You, you remember that yeah. passage? It's weird. That God would not abandon his body to decay. So what they're doing is going, this is our Messiah, but he's dead, you know? And so there's some sense where they want to go honor his body um, and give it the best shot to fight decay or decomposition. I'm winging it, but that's that's the way I've always thought it through. Yeah, I thought when we were in Israel and they talked about this whole idea of like a, a family tomb, it brought a realization about family. Like even like for for them, it's like, no, we're going to be in a box together <laughs> like forever. <laughs> like together. until Jesus returns, like we're in this box together. So yeah. it was a weird like family traditional thing that you're like, Oh, that's so different from our world. Mm-hmm. Like our world's like, this is my plot. This is my, you know, mm-hmm. whatever area. This is my vase that they put me in afterwards. Yeah. But and the, they're like, nope, this is it. The further we get from it, it's like, you know, throw my ashes out on the lake, you know. you know, yeah, like throw it on the golf course. I really <laughs> like the 18th hole. <laughs> you know, so you go back to the days of Abraham. Abraham is buried with Sarah. Isaac's buried with Rebecca. And Jacob is buried with Leah, all in the same place. They, they bought a plot of land and all of those tombs are all in the same place and what they were thinking 
is on the morning of the resurrection, because they believed in resurrection, on the morning of the resurrection, we're going to share that moment together. Wow. So it's, it's really pretty beautiful. If you go back and you read the story of Genesis, now we're on a rabbit trail, but this is cool We're stuff. on it. So Abraham's kind of a, not, not the greatest of husbands, right? You know, he, he does some things with his wife that are pretty shameful. I mean, like, you never want to judge anybody, but that guy, you know. Yeah, kind of messed it's up. It's not so good. Yeah, it was clear. You know, he's, he's allowing Pharaoh to like take Sarah <laughs> in and to it's his a harem. sister, though. Yeah, well, right. You know, <laughs> he's like a really bad example of a husband at that moment. But when she dies, he's pretty devastated. And so he goes, he goes to a, a group of people that owned a plot of land where God had come to both Abraham and Sarah and said, I am going to give you a son. And Sarah laughs at God, laughs. At God, like, yeah, right, I'm old. You you can't overcome yeah. a barren womb. I'm old. You can't bring life where life is impossible. And she laughs at God, and Abraham will laugh at God. And so when she dies, Abraham so believes that God is going to come through and bring forth a son that's going to lead to a Messiah who's going to conquer death that he buys the very plot of land where she laughed at God. And the cool thing about that is on the morning of the resurrection, if God uses the same you know, plot of land where they're buried to yeah. make them new, the first thing they're going to see is the very land where they laughed at God, the very trees of Mamre where they laughed at God. And so Abraham is anticipating God is going to conquer death. It's pretty cool. That's wild. So they were buried together. Might, you know. Maybe you think about Joseph. He's like, hey, don't leave my bones in Egypt because that's the land of death. Like, get my bones out of there. Like, even in death, he's like, I don't want to be in that place because that's not the people of God. That's not the place of God, which is astounding. Mm -hmm. And the Egyptians didn't believe that you could have resurrection if you were buried outside of Egypt. So not only is he saying, I want to be buried where the promise is, but he's saying, I reject all of the Egyptian mythology that says that I forfeit an afterlife if I'm not buried here. It's like him saying, no, 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 I am a Hebrew. I don't buy the Egyptian stuff. Wow, so Egypt must be run out of land. You know, like everybody's <laughs> like, hey, I got to be buried here. Like, it's not it's a wild. huge place. So were you on the Egypt? You weren't on the Egypt trip, right? No, so when, Morgan wasn't. It was pretty wild. So when you're driving down... You're, you're on the road, you're going through the desert, and here's the Nile, right? They bury, still to this day, they bury everybody over on the west side of the Nile because they associate the west where the sun sets with death and the east where the sun rises with new life. And still to this day, when you're driving, you see just these cemeteries that look like houses, like just house upon house upon house upon house, and they're tombs. They're, they're built-out tombs, and you're driving for miles and it's just massive cemeteries, but they're houses, and they look like communities. You know, it's wild it's how seriously they take it, but they bury everybody to the west. They still hold, and all the families are buried together. It's pretty wild. Huh. Did we exhaust that rabbit trail? I felt like we got there. All right, I think cool. it's done. <laughs> so they come bringing spices to anoint him, and very early on the first day of the week, so this is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? That's a pretty important question because yeah. those stones, like the pastoral staff, you you recruit all the guys of our church. Like, we're not moving that stone. Because mm-hmm. when you had a tomb in the ancient world, there was a track, and the track went down into kind of a deep hole, and this cylindrical stone that typically weighed somewhere between three and 4,000 pounds wow. rolled into that and set into that and sealed the mouth of a tomb. And so to move this thing, 
you were basically deadlifting three to 4,000 pounds and trying to get it up out of that little hole onto the track to roll it out of the way again. Why'd they make it so hard if this was going to be a reusable tomb? Because it, they wanted it sealed. They didn't want anybody to be in there to abuse because they viewed burial as uh, so, so important. Protecting the body. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. And anything else that they put in there that belonged to that person. I don't know if that happened, but I know in Egypt, when the dead were buried, they were buried with lots of their stuff, and you had tomb raiders um, all the time. So it I've was. I've seen Indiana Jones. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Laura Croft, we all that. Um, and so looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, which is exactly what Jesus had said he was going to do. And the angel continued, There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mary Magdalene races to the apostles, and she tells them, tells Peter, tells John, tells all of them, and they're all like, well, wait a minute. And John tells us that Peter and John race back to the tomb, and that's when they go in and they see the folded up linens, um, and that you have all the other interactions that the other Gospels put together. But this is the most important moment in all of Scripture. Yeah, I always think it's cool that um, that's the women who find the resurrected Jesus tomb empty. Mm-hmm. You have such a claim to women in a time when they did not get anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so we look back in our modern you know sense, and we're like, well, Jesus was just trying to put women down, and whatever the Bible is, you know, anti-women. But then you see a Jesus who's like, no, like the women are going to be the ones who discover that the tomb's empty. You know, when you talk about apologetics, people say if if you were trying to establish a new belief, you would never in that day and age have the first witnesses be women. Their testimony was not even allowed in court. You know, their their credibility was not seen as something that was acceptable among the learned, you know, the educated, the enlightened. And so here, not only do you have women discovering the empty tomb, but when, when Mary Magdalene runs and tells the apostles and they come and run inside the tomb, in John's gospel, you know, we're told that they, they look at the folded up linen strips and they leave. There's nothing. But then Mary Magdalene goes back in the tomb and she's the one who's given the vision of angels. And so it's like, it's not just happenstance. It's like God is going out of his way. Okay, John, Peter, go on in. All right, you're leaving. Okay, I'm going to show Mary the angels. <laughs> It's like he's going out of his way to reach the the least, the lost, the left out first. It's like, you know, in his incarnation, who does he come to first? He comes to shepherds. He comes to those that are, you know, far off, those that are outcasts. They, too, weren't allowed to testify in court because of their profession. And it's like every time God makes an appearance, he doesn't go out of his way to say, King Herod, here I am, you are powerful, testify of me. He always goes to those that you would think, why shepherds? In the first century, why women? You know, that's just going to set this up to be a harder sell. You know, who's going to believe this? And then, of course, later, Jesus is going to appear to the apostles. He's going to appear to 500, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And so the re- the news of the resurrection is going to explode right out of the gates. Yeah, it's cool that, you know, he's not like just trying to create this false narrative. And that's a lot about like, you know, like obviously the disciples took the body or this or that. So mm-hmm. it's not like this false narrative. You don't start it with, you know, you don't have good access to it. If all these women are the only ones saying that it happened. Mm-hmm. If you look at the resurrection, you know, lots of people who are way smarter than I am, um, will say that it's the the most well-attested fact of ancient history. Like it's, it's when you look at what happened as a result of it, when you look at the, the case that's to be made, all of the other alternatives just don't fit. You know, like there's the alternative of, you know, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, that's absurd. That's, I mean, the rest, it all falls apart. It was sealed. It was by Romans. It was guarded by Roman soldiers. It was Joseph's tomb. I think he would have known where it was. Like, Everything about that theory is ridiculous. Then you have the swoon theory that says, you know, well, you know, he had so much blood loss or something like that that he passed out. Yeah, he wasn't actually dead. Yeah, he wasn't dead. And then they buried him. And then he woke up and figured out how to roll a 4,000-pound stone. <laughs> from know, the inside. Right, yeah. yeah, from the inside. Take off his own burial cloth, and, that And, you stuff. know, they speared him in the side, but, you know, he, he survived that, all the blood loss of of the scourging that we've talked about, the crucifixion. And so Jesus is is brought back to life, and he is of good enough health to where he's walking seven miles to to another city the next that morning. Like it's just the swoon theory is absurd. Then you get other theories that the disciples stole the body. And that's where you have to come and say, okay, well, what do the disciples do? If if the disciples know for certain that the resurrection is a hoax, then it's remarkable that every single one of these guys, except for one, will give his life for the faith. And you've heard the argument, like, nobody dies for a lie. And everybody, then, then you get the rebuttal, well, lots of Muslims die, you have lots of martyrs, and there's a stark difference between a martyr of another faith and what we're talking about with the apostles. Because a martyr of another faith believes... Yeah, that what they're, they're saying is true. They don't have a. They don't have you know evidence that they can hold in their hands and know for certain. They're they're placing their trust, their faith that Islam is true when they give their lives. Right. The apostles know beyond a shadow of a doubt, one hundred percent, whether they're lying or they're telling the truth. They know whether the resurrection is real or whether the resurrection is a fabrication that they have made up. And every one of them lays down their life. Every one of them trades a life of comfort for a life of persecution, where they are hated and hunted and put to death in unbelievable ways. They travel to the far reaches of the globe, India and Africa and all through Asia Minor and Europe. These guys go everywhere and lay down their lives, and they're beaten and penniless and poor in the process. Why? Because... They suddenly believe with every fiber of their being that this life is not all there is. And so they are happy to lay down this life for the sake of eternity. Yeah, because the resurrection, I mean, right now in this scene, they're hiding, they're scared, their guy's dead. They think, oh, Rome's going to get me next because I followed this guy. Mm -hmm. Everything Jesus said was a lie. This is all over. This is donezo. These guys know, I mean... I don't want to be rude to them, but they're kind of scared right now. D- like, absolutely Like scared. the confidence that they're going to get 
to go to, like you said, to Asia Minor, to go all over the world and preach this and proclaim this is only because of the resurrection. Absolutely. Like so. only something supernatural could change these guys to do something so miraculous and amazing mm -hmm. with their lives if, you know, from what they were. Yeah. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And you're going to see that it wasn't just the apostles. You know, the, Paul makes a big claim when he says, you know, that Jesus not only appeared to the apostles and he appeared to James and he appeared to these women— but he appeared to 500 people. That's and, a big claim. And that's a lot back then, right? A, a huge amount. Yeah, because cities weren't packed like yeah. we have nowadays. So, so, I mean, there would have been a massive amount of people in Jerusalem, but to have 500 people who come forward and say, I saw him, I saw him with my own eyes, and who are testifying this, like, that's a big claim from Paul, and you should see some evidence for that, which we're going to get to in a minute, because you do see that the world immediately gets turned upside down with people who are going home. With, because they're coming from all over the world, right, for the celebration huh. of Passover, all those people go home. All those people go home to all these different regions, and the word of a resurrection is spreading everywhere. And you'll see, we'll set the Bible aside, and we'll just use secular sources, and you'll see that some news of a resurrection and some new superstition begins to turn the Roman world upside down long before the first gospel, which is the one that we're reading right now, Mark, is ever penned. Before Mark ever sends out this gospel, the church is blowing up. Wow. Yeah, the eyewitness testimony. Correct. You, you, I'd never thought of that, that it does, like all these people in this moment saw a crucified Jesus mm -hmm. at Passover. They walked by him. They moved in on that time. Then as they were going out, they saw a resurrected Jesus and went yeah. back home. It's amazing. Yeah. And they didn't sit around and wait for Mark to write his gospel before they started talking about it. Yeah, like, let's know? wait for the professional to write this down. <laughs> right? They go back to their synagogues, and they're like, hey, you know the one that we've been reading about that's that's in the prophets? Like, he came. He rose from the dead. Oh, my goodness. Like, I wish you were there. It was amazing. We saw him with our own eyes. And so you have pockets of this, this Christianity, the fulfillment of all of Judaism that starts blowing up. Like in all of these synagogues all over the world, and the and Rome and the Jewish leaders don't know what to do with it. It 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 creates quite a problem for them. And so we're gonna we're gonna pause here for just a moment because right now we're at verse eight. Uh oh. Yeah. Right. And this is one of the passages. There's there's really two major passages in Scripture that get contested as to whether or not they were in the original writings. One of those stories is is in John 8, and they, they say, you know, that there's an argument that says, hey, in the earliest manuscripts that we have, there's a section of John 8 that's not included in a lot of those manuscripts. So was it originally in there? And with that one, it's the stoning of the woman, um, you know, where Jesus says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Some people believe that that was not in the originals, and then there's other arguments that say that people took them out of the early manuscripts because they feared that it would give license to women to commit adultery without mm. a consequence. And so there's lots of arguments over that passage. The, the other one that's the major one is, from, the, from this point, the rest of Mark. So verse 9 through 20 in Mark 16, there are some people who say this was not in the original. And in the earliest manuscripts, overwhelmingly, Verses 9 through 20 are missing. And so there's all sorts of conjecture. Was this originally in it? Was it not in it? You know, you have early church fathers who are like writing around 200 AD, which is when the earliest manuscripts are happening, where they're citing passages in the latter ending of Mark. 
So it's like, okay, well, they had something, obviously, but then the full manuscripts that we have, a lot of them are missing, and so it makes people go, is it in there? Yeah. So what do you think, Will? What's the answer? Because <laughs> this, this is a, I mean, it's a twofold discussion, because you come to it, and nowadays in 2022, we have scholarship, we have thousands of years of people mm-hmm. um, writing about this, and this is one that, you know, like, when you're getting your doctorate, this is one you want to write about, and you want to write something interesting ab- mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I come to the... Well, we'll get to if we think it's real or not. But I come to the fact that I don't think we can end on verse 8. And I don't think Mark would end it on verse 8. Because to end a gospel with, for they were afraid, seems Mm -hmm. the antithesis of the gospel. Yeah. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Peace out. Yeah, like, and and because... What? No, the whole point is go tell everybody. Like, that that wouldn't end on good news. That's not quite a gospel, right? Yeah, that's not. And Mark's... Gospel is all about the Gentile scene, a risen Jesus, that mm-hmm. he is the real Messiah. Because you think about the, the cross scene, we have a Roman centurion coming to faith. Mm-hmm. No one's coming to faith if it ends with, they were afraid. Mm-hmm. And he's been talking, I'm going to be raised and I'm going to go ahead of you. And it, it wouldn't make sense to be like, and they were afraid, the end. Yeah, so Mark obviously writing that and knowing that Jesus like laid the game plan out, he knows what's going on. So you know, I don't think Mark just stopped. Yeah. I don't think that was period end of story. Hey, let's let's wrap this up. Let's send it to some other scribes. Let's copy it and send it out. Mm-hmm. So I'm to the degree, if you don't like the latter ending of Mark, that's fine. Then we lost something else. Like the last piece of papyrus is gone because I don't think this is the real ending. Yeah, no. There's it for sure. It would make absolutely no sense for Mark to end right here. So there had to be an ending that's in here. Now, whether or not that and this is the correct ending, see, I've, I fall in the camp, which is the minority of scholarship, by the way, that I'm going to trust that this is the real one. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that verses nine. And if you read your Bible, you'll see a little footnote, you know, that in many manuscripts, this section is not in there or it'll be italicized or brackets, brackets, because they're, they're very honest with you. They're not trying to hide it. They're, they're very honest about it. Um, but there's a number of reasons why, and people are like, oh my gosh, stop talking about this. I don't care. (laughs) But there's a number of reasons why I do trust it. One, you do have some of the earliest church fathers, um, who cite passages from Mark nine through 20 men like, uh, Papias and Augustine and, uh, Irenaeus. Yeah. I mean, so you have, and they're, you know, pretty early from 200 to, to 400. And so they have copies of this. Right, And then another one is something that's a little bit more complex, which is called chiastic structure. And chiastic structure is the way a lot of the Bible and a lot of the biblical books are written. The very beginning of the gospel echoes themes at the end, and as you get toward the center of the book, they're echoing and mirroring one another until you get to the middle of the book where it's like the pinnacle. And you see the chiastic structure holds. When you get in Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, there is a chiastic correspondence in Mark 1, which means if Mark is written in a chiasm, which it is, yeah. so when you get to chapter 2, there's echoes of 15, and when you get to chapter 3, there's echoes of 14. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So they come together. Then in Mark 1, there's nothing to land on if Mark huh. 16 verses 9 to 20 aren't there. So it'd be incomplete in that It way. would be incomplete. And so one of the reasons why the Spirit inspires these chiasms, and I think the writers were aware of them, was it authenticates. It really does. It's self-authenticating because if the beginning is there and it's looking for a chiastic correspondence at the end, well, there it is. It's Mark. It's the latter ending of Mark. And so 
for those reasons, I'm pretty confident that we can read this and say it's the Word of God, but as we're teaching this, that's the minority view yeah. in scholarship. And outside it is the, what it is. And outside the manuscript complaint or, mm-hmm. or issue, you come to, I think a lot of it is when you read it, you, you come to a part and you're like, whoa, what's going on here? And you're like, <laughs> hey, I, I'm, I'm a little sketched out about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean like how suddenly it just kind of shotguns a bunch of different stuff at you? Yeah, yeah, like in verse, yeah, in yeah. 17 and, and the following when it starts to get a little weird and we just get a little scared. Like, we're just like, oh, I don't <laughs> snake know. Snake handling. Yeah, yeah, snake handling, yeah. like drink deadly poison and not mm-hmm. die. Because that, you're like, all right, no way. Like, I'm Mark, I was tracking along all the way up to 16.8. I'm out. And I'm out. Yeah, like, <laughs> this can't be true, which is the bracketed part, yep. which is a huge reason why I think about it. Yeah, and... One of the other arguments, and, and we'll just read it. You, you can hear it as it's laid out. Let's, let's just assume, for the sake of arguing, that the end of the scroll of Mark's original gospel got burned or something. And so people realized we can't end on they didn't tell anybody because they were afraid. Like, that's just, that's no good. So then they took, the, one of the theories is they took the sections of the other gospels, because none of this is new apart from the snake stuff. Yeah. It's all telling stuff that we find in the other Gospels, right? So, And they just kind of give it an ending, and they, they take from different things and piece it together. I don't think that's necessary because the other Gospels borrow from Mark. Like, yeah. So you would expect to find them in the other Gospels. It, it just seems like scholarship is always eager to find something novel and weird. Yeah, it seems like they're working harder than they should together. Correct. Like, let's just go with it. You know, the Spirit has allowed this to be, I'm, I'm going to trust it. And it's like the resurrection theory is to disprove the resurrection. you got to work really hard yeah. and come up with something that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. logically. Yeah, Instead really, of just true. being like, hey, let's just trust this. This happened. So let's just jump in and look at it. It says, Now when he arose on the first day of the week, so this is Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Nothing new there. We find that in the other Gospels. We're good. She went and told those who had been with him, which is same as we find in the other Gospels, as they, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. We know that. Yep, that's everywhere else. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. That's talking about Luke 24, when he's on the road to Emmaus, and he appears to Cleopas and the friend, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. We know that. Tracking good. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And then he says to him, and he gives him the Great Commission, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We find that in John. He preached that regularly, John 3. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And this is where people go, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, here we go. This is where you get snake-handling churches up in Appalachia and people who get bit by rattlesnakes and end up dying in churches and crazy stuff. These are the signs that will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Okay, that's not all that. They've done that already. Jesus has already sent them out, and and they've been given that power. That's right. The apostles have been doing this. They will speak in new tongues. Well, that's coming. We see that in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost. Pentecost. Yep, no, no worries there. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Okay, and that's where the record player goes, you know. So what do we do with it? All right, so this is where when you get into translation, and I, I, I want you to be able to trust your translation because in 99.9% of the cases, they're like super faithful. But this is something you need to know. When it says they will pick up serpents with their hands, well, there's no with their hands. 
So what does that mean? You know, it's one thing if you're saying, hey, you're, we're going to handle snakes because that's what it reads like, right? Yeah. But if I said to you, you're going to have dominion over serpents, now that you're going to handle them, you're going to be able to, to manage serpents. That has a different connotation all of a sudden, right? Because yeah. who's the great enemy of, of the people of God from the beginning? Satan. The serpent, right? Satan himself. And so this is saying, going forward, you're going to be able to handle the manifestation of evil. It's no longer going to have dominion over you, the people of God. You will be able to handle it. That's, I think, how this is read. With their hands is not in the original Greek. It's not. And that's so. a normal thematic reading of Scripture. That, that's normal. Yeah. Right? Genesis right. 3.15, you know? Yeah, constantly. You're, you know, the, and Romans, Paul is going to say that the church of God is going to crush Satan's head under their feet. Like So there's references elsewhere where you see the church of God is going to have dominion over the serpents. In Isaiah, when he's prophesying about the end, what does he say? He says babies are going to be able to handle serpents. Now, in heaven, what does that mean? Does that mean that babies are going to be sitting around playing with snakes-like snakes toys? I mean, maybe, but I think the more likely reading of that is talking about some kind of a personification, like there's not going to be anything that harms anymore. You have dominion over it. It's, it's, no, lo it's no longer a threat to you. And by the way, if you're in Christ, S Satan cannot destroy you anymore. Yeah. You have dominion over the serpent now. You reign with Christ. You're seated in heaven with him. You can handle the serpent by faith in Christ. And then the next one, it says, they will drink deadly poison and it will not hurt them. Poison is not in the original Greek. So this word deadly there is used one time in the entire Bible and they translate it as deadly. But if it were to say, you will drink death and it will not hurt you. If you were to drink some, you know, it's anything that kills you, it's not going to hurt you. Now you find that all through the writings of the prophets, right? Yeah. You, it talks about drinking the cup of death repeatedly. Um, and when, when Paul writes about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, when the perishable, the stuff that dies, puts on the imperishable, which is faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, and then he quotes Isaiah 25, verse 8, and listen to what he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. What does that mean? That means that you'll drink death, and it will be victory for you. And then he goes on and he sings. He mocks death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sins in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? You're going to drink death and win. And so at the end of Mark's gospel, you have Jesus saying, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Poison's not in this statement. Yeah. Now reword it. If they will drink death and it's not going to harm you. Yeah. You're, you're going to consume death just like Paul and Isaiah are talking about, and you emerge victorious. That's... That I have no problem with that. That's that's pretty beautiful. Yeah, I'm pretty awesome. pumped about We're that, in. right? And then the last part is they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And again, hopefully, you find that in the rest of the New Testament writings. Like elders are commanded to pray for the sick. Yes, yeah, so when you read like, like that, it doesn't sound crazy. Yeah, it doesn't you sound know, so I crazy. I have no drawbacks there. You know, in that read, I'm like, oh, I'm in.
do not go drink strychnine or don't do it antifreeze and all these other poisons. No Tide Pods. You will die. Let me let me just say, you're going to die. You'll be victorious if you believe in Jesus. Amen. <laughs> but you'll you're going faster. to die. And if a coral snake or a rattlesnake or a cobra bites you, the poison will destroy your flesh and your go nervous to the system. And every, go ASAP. to the hospital immediately, right? Snake handling churches severely misinterpret this passage. So we have we have no problems with the longer ending of Mark here. Yeah, it didn't take a lot of work for us to get there. I mean, we just opened up Logos and saw the Greek, and it was like, you know, oh, so yeah. it's not from lack of effort. You know, <laughs> it's just they That's read right. what they wanted to read. Yeah. You know, they were proving their point. They weren't letting the Bible speak to them. They're like, okay, let's, we want to do this, and here's the Bible that mm-hmm. backs that up. That's right. That's right. All right, so so going back, we've, we've closed out Mark, and, and the resurrection being the most important thing here. Um, I've heard it said before that, all throughout the, the gospel, Jesus is writing checks. All these promises that are given to all these broken people who are so desperate to be made new, Jesus has been going through his life making all these promises, and on the morning of the resurrection, it's like the check's cleared. Boom. It, it showed that he had the authority. I mean, he's been doing miracles. He's been showing authority. But now he has. it's shown that he has authority over the great enemy of death itself. And when Jesus, you know, when you read the New Testament, when you read the writings of Paul, it's really instructive that when Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus rose, we rose with him. When Jesus ascended into heaven, we ascended with him. This is the language of the New Testament. And as he reigns next at the right hand of God, guess what? You reign with him. There is a seat in heaven with your name on it in the courts of heaven right now that he has already purchased. And so in his resurrection, he shares that power because he has lived his life and given his righteousness to you so that everything that he earned by his righteousness, you earned. And now you're entitled to the power of the resurrection. And that's amazing. That frees you up to live this life knowing that, you know, the next, oh my goodness, the next 40 years or however long I have left, 40 years if I'm lucky. I look at my family tree. (laughs) I think everything that could go wrong with a person's genetics has gone wrong in my family tree. So, like, I think my life expectancy was like three days ago. (laughs) But who can't, like, death has no power over us anymore. And so I don't have to live white knuckling like, oh my gosh, I only have 30 years left in a midlife crisis. And oh, like it's a midlife crisis crisis if my life is over in 30 years. But this is just the infinitesimally small portion of my life that is to go on for eternity with my Savior. So it allows me to live this tiny little mist and vapor of life with radical generosity and freedom. Yeah, the resurrection does so much because it's not only just like we, we will be in heaven mm-hmm. one day, but it changes so much about today. Like, I mean, the world's on fire. We get that. Like, you know that. <laughs> yes, like, it is. We're not shocked by that. It's not looking like there's a bright spot in 10 years that we're going to be like, whoa, we saw this coming. No, it's probably going to be just like this in 10 years. And that's great. That's fine. Whatever, because that's not our hope. Hmm. Like the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us now. That's wild. So we can be just like, you know. The angels always lead with do not be afraid, but this one felt like the first time where it's like, yeah, no, there really is no fear. You've got basis to not be afraid. Yeah, like it's like, no, this is all real. Mm -hmm. Jesus was raised from the dead, and Mm -hmm. he did all of that for us. And it's not like he's 
hoarding that, not giving it to us. No, he's saying like, no, now go and live in mm. that same power. I, I love this illustration, but if, if I told you to run into a brick wall, you're, I mean, you might run at the beginning, but as you get closer to that wall, you start wincing and, you know, putting your arms yeah, up protect and slowing yourself. down and protecting yourself. It changes the way you run. But if I showed you that that brick wall was nothing but a paper thin, you know, paper mache that you're going to run through like football players running out onto the football field. And I said, run. And you know that that thing is not going to harm you and stop you in your tracks and devastate you and injure you. It doesn't, you're not going to change the way you run in the short life that you have here. You're not going to like protect yourself and go, oh, I've got to build up a bank account and da, 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 and live all to hoard for this life. It's like psh, this life on the other side is where the inheritance is. On the yeah. other side is where the joy is. On the other side is where all, all things good that I've been storing up in this life are, man, I want to race through that thing. It changes the way you live. It frees you up. And by the way, one of the one of the things that that we miss so much is like you look at this world and it's a dumpster fire. It is an absolute dumpster fire. I hate the news. I hate just about everything going on in the world right now. Like <laughs> you don't want to be around me when I'm watching the news. You know that. Or the next day. Or the next it, day. It's got a real <laughs> carryover effect. <laughs> so, but but this is where it's not just, you know what, it's all going to burn and it's all just a dumpster fire and who cares. Inside you, the Lord has given you the power of the resurrection in you. He's given yeah. the power of the Spirit at work in you, which means the resurrection is not just something that's going to happen to you someday. It's not just something that's going to happen to the world someday. It's a power that you have in you to unleash upon the world, to take the hope and the power of the resurrection and to breathe it into people's lives and marriages. My goodness, how I would love to see more resurrection power mm -hmm. in marriages because it seems like the moment that people start talking about divorce, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, let God raise your marriage from the dead. Like, allow all the hurt and all yeah. the pain. Let it all fade away. Let it die and let God breathe new life into it in a million different ways. You know, and all the depression and jobs and work and things that that just feel like they're withering toward death in this life. Hopes. God is a God of resurrection. Believe that. Press into it. You know, have the imagination of faith like Jesus exhibits in his life where your your most ferocious enemies could be one as friends. That's mm. power of resurrection. Yeah. You know, look at look at people who you're who are your opponents. And imagine how kindness and grace and mercy could win them, not just to the truth, but to friendship. The world needs more of that. We need power of the resurrection, like desperately, here and now. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, I read a C.S. Lewis quote the other day about, hey, you've never run into a mortal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I love That's that. crazy, right? <laughs> like, we're, we're walking around, we're, we're playing, we're joking, we're laughing, and C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis quote's better, so just Google that. Um, <laughs> But you like, have never met a mere mortal. mortal. Yeah, and it, and it goes on and on about it from the weight of glory, I do believe. Um, but that's beautiful because it's, yeah, like no one's past resurrection, right? Right. No one that we run into, no one on a daily basis, like all of us in the end will have the chance to be resurrected on the last day or not, mm -hmm. which is, which really changes your outlook on this life, you know, especially in divisive times. Like, you know, you look across the political aisle. Yeah, without that hope, it's, y there's only despair. 
Yeah, that would be a real downer without this. <laughs> Which is why you kind of get the world right now. Yeah. You know, they're not thinking like this. Yeah, and that's why you look at the mental health crisis and loneliness and stress and anxiety and depression and suicide. It's all flying through the roof because if this is all there is, I'm out. You yeah, know, yeah. like you should be depressed get, for real. It, I, how would you avoid it? I, it really is like the, faith and resurrection and hope. It's the only way the world makes sense. And I was talking talking with somebody, somebody in our church just yesterday over lunch about how one of the immutable laws that you find written into existence is the the relationship of glory and suffering, right? And so you see, inevitably, that if you take glory first, suffering follows. And if you take suffering first for a purpose, glory follows. And so what do I mean by that? So I'm dieting right now, right? Because I took glory first. Mm. <laughs> I ate all the stuff, and I didn't exercise, and suffering came. This is not the illustration I was expecting. <laughs> but the same is true. But you see, if I take the glory first, then the suffering comes. Yeah. If I don't study for the test, then I get bad grades. If I don't put in the hard work, I don't get the good job. If I don't, whatever, save for retirement, then I've got to work and slave away all my life. Like... When you invest and you sacrifice on the front end, there's always glory to follow. There's the good thing that comes. But if you take the good thing up front and you don't sacrifice at the beginning, then suffering is to follow. It's, it's, like, an, it's like an immutable law that works its way through everything, right? Yeah. And the same is true. Like That's why one of the ethics of the Christian faith is suffering. Like You're going to suffer for a while here. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Because you have the promise that glory is to come. He talks about that, that, you know, this is light and momentary afflictions, he says. It's, it's, it may be hard. It may be terrible afflictions. Yeah. But in comparison to the extreme joy and glory that's stored up for you, it's light and momentary. And in comparison to eternity, you know, the, the years of suffering you have here are nothing. So Paul says it's light and momentary affliction, but there's this weight of glory, this eternal weight of glory that's being stored up for you. And so if the Christian is walking through suffering, he can walk through suffering because he knows what's coming, right? She knows what's coming. It it changes the way that you're able to walk through things. You don't just despair and say, I give up. You yeah. know it's for a reason. It's a There's a purpose behind it. Yeah, and if we know, you know, I think my generation especially, you know, a main goal, I think this was every generation to some degree, but it's like avoiding suffering at all costs, mm -hmm. right? Like, let's just avoid it. Let's just avoid it. Let's just like try to put up this little barricade around us. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, let's put everything where it should be or think we can control that. And it's not going to happen, right? Suffering's going to come. So the question is, are we going to suffer well, purposefully Correct. so that it leads to glory? Or are we just going to try to avoid it <laughs> and it's going to hit us in the face anyways? Yeah. And yeah. we'll waste it. Yeah. We'll waste our suffering, which is a weird idea. But... You know, I was reading a philosopher um, not long ago, and they were saying that of all the civilizations that have ever existed in the history of the world, the American civilization has the greatest allergy to suffering. Yeah. And as a result, because we don't know how to suffer well, we don't know how to deal with trials and adversities. When it comes, we want someone to blame. We want someone quickly to get rid of it. We feel there's this great injustice. I should never, ever have to suffer. And we get angry about the existence of suffering in the world, and it's an immutable problem. It's going to be here in a broken world. You cannot possibly get rid of it. Should you work to, to alleviate other people's suffering? Absolutely. Yeah. But if you get to the point where you despair in your suffering and you can't suffer well with the hope of glory, 
it's going to destroy you. It's going to drive you into the ground because you cannot possibly avoid suffering in this world. It's impossible. Yeah, I think the doctrine that helps, like not just the resurrection, obviously we talk about that, but we always forget the end of the Gospels, Mm -hmm. right? We we love to talk about, you know, the incarnation gets a lot of playtime at Christmas, which it should, Mm -hmm. you know, crucifixion, resurrection as it should, but we forget that, you know, Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he resurrected, and then he ascended back up, Mm -hmm. right? And now we have a Jesus in a resurrected human still body Mm -hmm. that sits at the right hand of God forever intercessing on our behalf. Amen. Right, and that's just beautiful. Like I don't think about that on a daily basis. <laughs> I, I read something, and I can't remember who. I'm, I'm like forgetting everything of who said stuff. He reads a lot, folks. Just just like Twitter just, quotes. Yeah, just never knows the author. <laughs> but anyway, it was somebody, I think it was McShane. Um, anyway, he said, if you could hear Jesus praying for you in the next room to God the Father, if you could hear God the Son, who controls and has authority over all things in the next room, praying for you to God the Father, you wouldn't fear a million armies. That's amazing. And that's exactly what God the Son is doing for you right now. And he's infinite, so he's he's got it all. Mm-hmm. It's not just me for a couple seconds. It's not just you after that. It's all of us at the yeah. same time. Right now he is praying for me. Wow. Why am I afraid? Like, and if the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, as James says, like, well, here's the infinitely righteous one. His prayers matter. It's on steroids, (laughs) yeah. And he's praying for me right now. Man, that should change the way I walk. But you got to remember it. And we're, we're like, we're idiots. (laughs) You know, we, we forget that the moment I say it, by the end of the day, I'll be pouting about something. Yeah, like three hours and be stressed about something stupid. (laughs) Exactly. Sorry, earlier we talked about how You see evidence of the resurrection outside of the church before the Gospels are written. And so what I want to do to to close us out today is just to share some of the stuff that's happening before Mark writes his Gospel. All Jews under heaven are required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so when you get to Acts, for example, the Jews are also required to come to Pentecost. All these different nations just... I'm going to list them. You're not going to know where they are because they're ancient places that don't go by these names, but listen to how many. He says, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So Luke in, in Acts is saying, These are where everybody came from to come to Pentecost, right? And then you put it on a map of the ancient world, and it literally is in every direction. It looks like an explosion that's going to cities from every place. And so they all come from all over the world, and the idea that Luke wants you to imagine is then they go home, right? And they're taking news of Pentecost. They're taking news of the resurrection all back to these places, which are in Africa, in Arabia, in Asia, in Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, Rome. They go back, and they're all going to be saying, you won't believe what just happened in Jerusalem. A guy rose from the dead. The Spirit of God descended on us. We spoke in languages that we are—it's not even our native tongue that we didn't know before. People were being baptized. Like, there was this wild movement of the Holy Spirit. It was powerful. Messiah has come. Everything has been fulfilled. 
and all of the the Jews that didn't make the pilgrimage that are back in their synagogues, some of them convert, and other others are thinking that's absolute blasphemy. And so, when Paul starts writing his letters, because he'll write many of his epistles before Mark will write the first gospel, in fifty A.D. So remember, the church isn't supposed to exist yet because the gospel writers hadn't invented it. Yeah. If you're a skeptic, right? Nobody has said there's a risen Jesus, because they don't do that until the Gospels are written. But in 50 AD, you have 1 Thessalonians verse 1-8. He says that their faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Boom. It's exploding, and that's in 50 AD. We're talking less than two decades after the resurrection. Paul is saying all through Macedonia, the church is exploding. It's gone forth everywhere. In 57 AD, when he writes to the Romans, he commends them because their faith was being reported all over the world. Now, this is before, supposedly. Like, the liberal scholarship says that Mark is written somewhere around 60 A.D. to 65 A.D. I think it's written earlier, but let's take the later date. In 62 A.D., when when Paul is under house arrest in Rome, he says to the Colossians that their faith is blowing up. He says all over the world the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. How's it doing that if the gospels haven't been written yet? What source is telling people that Jesus died... He was risen, and he ascended. It has to be the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses. That's absolutely right, because it hasn't been written yet. During his missionary journeys, the enemies lament that you know the gospel is turning the world upside down. And I want you to understand, this is tearing the Jewish communities apart. And all over the world, you had, when the Babylonians came and conquered the Jews in 586 B.C., 600 years before Jesus. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. They're spread out all over the world, and they're done so with the, with the hope that this is going to squash them. Yeah. They're, they're going to be so spread out, they'll never be a power again. It was done to punish them, but the Jews were faithful. They went to Egypt, and they went to, to Italy, and they went to Macedonia, and they went to Turkey, and they went all over Arabia and to the Far East, and they built synagogues because they couldn't go to the temples. They And so... They start teaching the prophets in all of these synagogues, right? And the people for hundreds of years are saying, you know, the prophet said someday there's going to be a Messiah that comes, and this Messiah is going to establish a kingdom of everlasting righteousness, and he's going to conquer death, and he's going to do all these things. And so for hundreds of years, by God's sovereignty, think of this, he sent those Jews into exile all over the world, and now all these regions have been hearing the Jews talk about a coming Messiah. Wow. Think about the sovereignty of that. Yeah. And so where do the apostles and all the early witnesses go? They go back to these synagogues where the these communities have been saturating in kerosene of the prophets for so long, and they come back with the spark of, it's Jesus, and woof, it just lights up all over the place. But there's a number of Jews that are in these synagogues that are saying, you're saying that God became a man? That's blasphemy. Yeah. That is offensive. And so riots are happening all over the world before Mark writes his gospel. I mean, it was Paul at first. B- well, Paul. Paul is going to be setting off riots everywhere he yeah. goes. Like, let's just walk through the book of Acts. This is going to be exhausting. <laughs> but I want you to hear, this is Paul's experience, his missionary experience, because we tend to clean it up. Let's just boil it down, and let me tell you what Paul experienced. In Damascus, the Jews plotted to kill him. In Jerusalem, they were seeking to kill him. These are direct quotes. In Pisidia, they attacked him and drove him out. In Iconium, they sought to stone him. In Lystra, they stoned him and left him for dead. 
and Philippi he was beaten with rods and jailed. And Thessalonica, a violent mob, drove him out of the city. And Berea, the crowds were stirred up against him. In Athens, they mocked him for the resurrection. In Corinth, they opposed and reviled him. In Ephesus, they rioted against his teachings and drove him out. When he goes back to Jerusalem, they have him arrested and sent on a ship to be imprisoned in Rome. Like everywhere that Paul goes... It's contentious. The idea that God became a man and rose from the dead and the power of the resurrection could be yours is setting off riots all over the place. And so does this become an issue for Rome? Like it's such an issue that Claudius, Emperor Claudius, who reigns right after Tiberius, Tiberius is the emperor when Jesus is crucified, Claudius comes to power in 41 AD. So less than a decade after Jesus, Claudius comes and he starts banning Jewish people from the area of, of Israel to travel to any other ports. So he goes, for example, Alexandria had one of the biggest populations of Jews in the ancient world, and he banned the Palestinian Jews from coming there because he says, quote, they were fomenting a general plague which now infests the whole world. <laughs> what was that general plague? What was causing all these riots? We're told in Corinthians, or I'm sorry, in Acts 18.2, that a couple named Priscilla and Aquila show up in the city of Corinth because Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Why? Well, historians tell us. Suetonius tells us, since the Jews of Rome were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Christ, he expelled all the Jews from the city. And so it's such an issue that Claudius, who reigns eight years after Jesus is crucified, he starts expelling Jews from Rome and banning them from traveling to Africa because it's creating such a mess in his empire already. The news of the resurrection is turning the world on its head long before Mark is ever penned. Then you come across something called the Nazareth inscription. Google this. And you have Claudius, the most powerful man in the world, with an empire that stretches all the coast of the Mediterranean. And for some reason, he sends an edict, which you can look at online. He sends an edict to the village of Nazareth. And what does it say? If anyone has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulcher, tombs, sealing stones... Against such a person, I wish a vi that violator to suffer capital punishment. So why in the world would the emperor be so concerned about people in Nazareth? Because what's Nazareth? Well, he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. His disciples are all from the region of Galilee. He sends an edict to Nazareth saying, if anybody's taking bodies out of tombs, I will kill them. Why is he doing that? You know, And he, he only reigns to 54 A.D., so before Mark, you got Claudius who reigns, and he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put people to death who <laughs> remove bodies from tombs, and I don't want people from this region going to the Jewish regions of the world. I want all the Jews out of Rome because things are so unsettled for some reason. Yeah, weird. Weird, right? That, so the, the, the church, the gospel had been spreading so rapidly that by the time you get to Nero— in 64 A.D., when the fire burns down Rome, you know, the Nero you're fiddling yeah. and all that stuff, who does Nero blame this fire on? Got to be the Christians. He blames it on the Christians, right? He's, and so he starts gathering up Christians in Rome in 64 A.D. Remember, liberals don't have Mark written till 65 A.D., so Christians shouldn't even exist yet because they're, they haven't invented Jesus yet, right? 
And yet there's so many Christians all through Rome that he's rounding them up and burning them on crosses, and he he goes and blames. There's, there's a historian and a senator named Tacitus, and I'm going to read direct quote. So just hang on to this, because this is, this is a guy who lived through this, right? He said, to get rid of the report, that because people were blaming Nero for burning the place down. He said, to get rid of that report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians, by the populace. Christus, which is the Latin way of saying Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, which is the resurrection, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but then in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So get what he's saying. This massive wave of problems caused by the resurrection had already been checked, and now it's breaking out again in 64 AD. And so then listen to what he says. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty of being a Christian. Then upon their information, listen to what he says, an immense multitude was convicted. How is an immense multitude of Christians in Rome before the first gospels ever written? Yeah. Eyewitnesses. Hmm. Mockery of every sort was added to their death, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight expired. There's lots and lots of different evidence that even if you set the Bible aside, you have to contend with something was going on in the Jewish communities where they believed in the power of resurrection that was throwing everything upside down so much that the emperors, Hmm. before Mark pens the first gospel, are already involved because it's creating such havoc in their empires. Wow. And that's compelling evidence. And the skeptic who wants to deny it, like there's Read N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection. It's, it's amazing. Really, really thorough, well thought through all the evidence and, and thinking through how all this played out. But there's lots of reasons to be confident that the resurrection happened. It changed the world, and it changed us. I'll close with this. You know, the whole point of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, it wasn't necessary for God. Why does he come? He wasn't lacking anything in heaven but it's just the immense measure of his love that he was unwilling to spend eternity without you. And so the gift of his suffering and taking your sins and making you pure and giving you the hope of the resurrection and eternity with him and a world that's not a dumpster fire and quite the opposite. It's the love of God, and we walk in that hope, and the resurrection is the the sealed assurance, guarantee, displayed of that hope. And so we thank God for the resurrection, and we think about our future, our loved ones, and we want them to share in the hope of that resurrection that is found only in Christ. This is a hope that's worth sharing. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on another episode of Out of Water. It's been awesome walking through the Gospel of Mark. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. And you will see us again next week. They can only hear us. Oh, that's right. You will, you will hear us again next week. Thanks, Smart Alec. <laughs> All right. Have a great week, everyone. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. 
You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.